Welcome to Smoky Mountain Air, a new series from Great Smoky Mountains Association where we'll bring you interviews and author readings that delve into the diverse natural and cultural history of Great Smoky Mountains National Park. I'm Karen Key, Senior Publication Specialist with my co-host Valerie Polk, videographer at GSMA. Early 20th century hikers in the Great Smokies were likely to encounter a small Japanese man on the trail. He was 5 feet 2 inches tall and weighed little more than 100 pounds. He might have been burdened with a pack containing a heavy camera, tripod, and accompanying equipment. Or he might be pushing the front wheel of a bicycle connected to handlebars with an odometer attached, a cyclometer that he used to measure trail mileage. Any conversation with this diminutive man would have entailed responses in broken English, and as likely as not, he would have been accompanied by men and women, his friends, who frequently hiked with him. Years later, this same man received a letter written April 20, 1932, from the Associate Director of the National Park Service, Arno Kammerer, that stated in part, You surely are the Great Smoky Mountains Patriot. That's a short excerpt from Bill Hart's article about the enigmatic photographer who was born in Japan but came to America and gave his heart to the Great Smoky Mountains region. His name was George Massa, and Hart's article appeared along with a selection of Massa's photographs in one of our missing issues of Smoky's Life, Volume 2, Number 2. These missing issues are no longer in print but are available to view online at smokiesinformation.org slash missingissues. Our guests Janet McHugh and Paul Bonesteel are in the process of co-authoring a biography of George Massa. McHugh is an independent writer and researcher, co-author of Back of Beyond, a Horace Kephart biography, and collaborator on many Kephart projects. She is the former director of Mann Library at Cornell University. Paul Bonesteel is a filmmaker, director, and founder of Bonesteel Films, a production company based in Asheville, North Carolina. His documentary film, The Mystery of George Massa, explores the compelling story of the immigrant who came to the mountains of western North Carolina, gained employment at the Grand Grove Park Inn, connected with many of Asheville's most influential residents, and found his passion in photography and hiking with his friends in the Carolina Mountain Club. We spoke with McHugh and Bonesteel on an online video chat while they were in their respective states of New York and North Carolina. Welcome, Janet McHugh and Paul Bonesteel. Thank you. It's nice to be here today. Yes, very exciting. So who is George Massa? George Massa showed up in Asheville as a 24, 25-year-old, very productive and engaged somewhat recent immigrant from Japan. We don't know exactly how long he, he was in the States before he showed up in Asheville in 1914. But for the next uh, 19 years or so, uh, was part of, you know, a, an amazing period in the 20th century, especially in the, in the Western North Carolina, Eastern Tennessee area. Uh, Asheville blossomed and the, the roaring 20s were never more roaring than in Asheville. And uh, within a few years, George Massa had befriended the Vanderbilts and uh, some of the most you know, influential people in the state of North Carolina and beyond. 
through his personality and his photography and his passion. Um, and so obviously also as the conservation movement was at a real pivotal moment where national parks were blossoming, the national forests were being added and expanded and people were actually getting out and hiking and exploring in, in a recreational way. And Moss had walked into Western North Carolina right while all this was happening, first in the middle of the World War, in World War I and then into the Great Depression. And so he did, I didn't really answer who he is, <laughs> but, you know, he became an amazing uh, character here, mostly through his sort of selfless efforts to help to create the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And yeah, it's it's hard for me to sum it up in a minute. It's it's hard. It's hard to categorize George Mass. I, I mean, first, he's a photographer. He's an extraordinary photographer, but he's also a, a patriot. I think of George Mass as being, on the one hand, a man who hustled to earn a living as a photographer in a difficult period of our history, um, but also was passionate about the mountains and used his photography to to highlight the area which became the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. So he's a man of mystery. I think George, I think Paul's film, um, The Mystery of George Mass, I, I, I joked with him when we began our project that we could name our biography More Mysteries of George Massa, um, or maybe uncovering some of the mysteries and finding even more mysteries. So, you know, he arrived as, as a young man, as Paul said, you know, in 1915, and, and what he accomplished in those 18 years of living in Western North Carolina is really quite extraordinary. You know, it's a, it's a story of, of a man who we don't know that much about, and I think Paul and I are trying very hard to find out some of those details of how he became the man we know him as. Janet, you wrote a chapter on George Massa in the book you co-authored with George Ellison, Back of Beyond, a Horace Kephart biography. So what interests you in writing a whole book about Massa? Well, George and I, as you said, did a chapter on George Massa, but there's so many other things that we didn't get into. We looked at George through the prism of, of Horace Kephart. To a certain extent, he was a secondary character in a book about our primary subject, who was Horace Kephart. So we barely touched on his background. We barely touched on his um, photography, uh, other than his work in the Great Smoky Mountains. And we didn't talk at all about his motivations. Um, what made George Massa so dedicated to capturing the beauty of the Smokies? What made him so devoted to mapping and the nomenclature work that, that he did? Um, you know, I, th I think there's a lot more that we could we could talk about. George Ellison and I did an introduction to Camping and Woodcraft, an 80-page introduction to Camping and Woodcraft that was published by GSMA, and we discovered we had a lot more to say. And um, so I, th I think we could easily say the same thing about George Massa. We did a chapter on on the man, but there's a lot more that um, is intriguing about him. And I think once you become fascinated with a person, you want to know more. You want to figure out, um, I, you know, I almost feel like I have to go back and re-read all the things that I read when I was looking at it through the filter of, of Horace Kephart, because there's a different, you know, when, when another person becomes the subject, uh, Horace Kephart goes into the background when George Massa comes to the foreground. Would you mind reading an excerpt from that chapter? Sure, Valerie. I'd be happy to read a chapter from Back of Beyond. 
This is Chapter 16, Congenial Comrades. George Massa was short and slim, barely over five feet and little more than a hundred pounds. His smile was broad, his hands slender, and his gait the light springy step of one who is accustomed to walking much in the out-of-doors, according to Lola Love, a reporter for the Asheville Citizen. On his trips through the Smokies, Massa lugged an 8x10 view camera, tripod, and equipment that weighed half as much as he. Moved by his evocative photos, appreciative audiences sometimes refer to him as the Ansel Adams of the Smokies. Little is known about Massa's background, and much of his photographic legacy has been lost. In spite of significant research, none of his biographers can verify where he was born, how he was educated, or when he arrived in the United States. What we do know is that Kephart and Massa made a formidable team. These two congenial comrades were at first glance an odd couple. Kephart, a man in his sixties when they met, Swiss stock, well-educated, and weathered from his lifestyle. Massa, twenty years his junior, of Japanese ancestry and aesthetic, with vague and conflicting details about his background. Kephart's bookshelf held Dante and Chaucer. Massa's collection included Japanese samurai and ninjutsu stories. But they had much in common. They were both outsiders— guarded about their past, and passionate about the Smokies. Their professional collaboration and friendship led to extensive explorations as they hiked, camped, and traveled by horse and by car throughout the Smokies. They shared interests in mapping geographic nomenclature and exploring the terra incognita of the Appalachian Range. Thank you so much for that, Janet. It will really be a pleasure to read an entire book about Massa. So I have a question about the pronunciation of his name. Is it George Massa or is it George Massa? I think it's controversial. Um, you, you know, his name, if you were a Japanese person, you would pronounce it one way. But Bill Hart said that he asked Barbara Ambler Thorne how to pronounce it, and she pronounced it a different way. So, you know, you have half the half the universe saying Massa and the other half of the universe is saying Massa. And I think after Bill told me that story, I think I've been trying to call him Massa, although I think in the Japanese language, he'd probably be more Massa. <laughs> what do you say, Paul? I generally say Massa. There have been different spellings, even of that, with two S's on some, which doesn't really change the way the A is pronounced. If you were back hiking with him on the trail, he would probably respond to either one and not correct you. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, I mean, that to a certain extent, that, that begins the mystery. We don't really know how he pronounced his name or how, you know, and I suspect in Japan it would be pronounced one way. Um, the way you even introduce yourself, whether you're using your first name or your s second name, your family name or your... Um, first name would be different in Japan and different in the United States. So, you know, there are lots, lots of question marks we have. Paul, after working on your film about Masa and now researching for the biography, what excites you about a more thorough telling of Masa's story? And have you been thinking about this for some time? Yeah, well, making a film, uh, especially that film, 
was, you know, a classic example of how you have to do all this, in this case, research and, and finding of material. And in Mazda's case, it was photographs. It was kind of um, gathering together letters and trying to understand who he was and according that out, gathering it. And then when you have to make an hour and a half film, like you have to kind of squeeze it all back together again. And it's an act of reduction. So I always have regrets when I finish uh, an hour film or an hour and a half film that like, oh, there's so much that I couldn't go into. There's, there was detail, there was backstory, there was side story. And uh, of course, you know, after 18 years, I look at the film now and go, oh, okay, we got plenty of backstory and side story in there. Like it's all, but at the moment uh, that you finish a film, you feel like there's so much left. So there, there was a lot of that that I, from the beginning felt that I wanted to, to write something more thorough about the story. But more than anything, it was the, the knowledge that there was more information out there. We still don't know where all the answers are to the mysteries, but, um, but they, they are out there, you know? And so that kind of gnaws at you and, and keeps motivating me over the years to keep my, uh, my hand in, in Masa research and things have popped up. And so, you know, I, I think the, the most clear answer to your question really is that whenever over the past 20 years, people ask me about George Masa, all of a sudden the rest of the afternoon is pretty much gone in the, either because I start talking about it or I get excited about it and I get a box out and I start thinking you know, how can we solve this mystery or how, what haven't we uh, uh, researched or where could we find uh, the answer to that? Or just more broadly and more artistically enjoying spending time thinking about what Moss's experience was like, just on a purely creative level. I know enough now that I can just kind of, kind of create a fiction in my head. And so um, how much of that is, is true or fiction it is now sort of the, the quest to, to bridge the gap between the, the fictionalized version that, that we all have about Masa and, and the reality. That's, that's what I hope writing a book can do, give clarity and fact to, to, to things that haven't been clear and then pose some possibilities that are much more clearly informed and uh, and expressed. Paul, how many photographs do you have that were Mosses or of Mossa? Because I watched the documentary recently and I was surprised at how many pictures of him there were. I, I don't know the count, but when I first started the project, one of the early goals was, are there enough pictures of him or by him to make a film? Um, and it turned out there were, but we did do the recreations and we did do the recreations in the film partly because I wanted to kind of go there like physically up on the top of some mountains and show a, not a black and white, but, but a more sort of re realism or, or kind of flashback. But he never shied away from cameras for sure. I have to uh, assume that a good majority of those pictures of him were taken with his own camera or other friends of his who had cameras. The smaller size cameras were beginning to kind of become popular in the early uh, 20s 
Um, and so there were more people than just professionals carrying those cameras. So that makes up some of them. But um, in terms of his reticence for telling his story, which is sometimes mentioned that, that he was kind of secretive about his history, or he, he wasn't um, shying away from the cameras. Um, and, and we're very thankful for that. And that was early on, like, can I make a film about this guy? Once I, there were a couple of collections in particular where we had photographs and then more started popping up. It got exciting that not only to illustrate the film, but to actually see it's, this is going to sound strange, but I had questions about like whether he actually existed. Like who was this guy? You know, everyone likes to tell a tale. Um, and I had, so I, I had to kind of, I don't know, explore. I tried to explore all the questions that were out there about who he was, his name, his origins and such. And the photographs were were helpful in that. Again, maybe it's my imagination at work, but I, I see him in different places and in different settings and I'm reading into the relationships he, he has with people around him. His disposition and his presentation in some of those photographs speak to his place and his and his personality. Buncombe County Library has a really rich collection of, of NASA images that they've digitized. And, you know, you might, to your listeners, if they wanted to get a, a, a sense of, of NASA's work, I mean, there are lots of different collections, but those you can look at online while we're all quarantined. Janet, what kind of research have you begun on the biography? Well, you know, we have some challenges right now because of um, because of COVID. So getting to any any museum or archive is or a library is incredibly um, it's impossible, frankly. So, you know, I, th- I think what Paul and I are doing right now is gathering the things that we have and trying to digitize those so we can share them with each other. All of the online resources that we can that we can garner, we're, we're, we're trying to do that. We've also hired somebody to help us, particularly with the Japanese language and cultural aspects of the story. And uh, she's she's been very helpful. She's a genealogist specializing in Japanese immigration. So that's been very helpful to us. I, I was reminded of a um, quote that Lytton Strachey, the writer and um, biographer, and uh, I think he was a member of the Bloomsbury Group, he, he, he said you have this vast ocean of, of information and, and a biographer's job is to dip a little bucket into that, that ocean and, and come up with some tidbits that allow you to learn more about that person or explain more details or insights about that person. And I think Paul and I right now are trying to fill the reservoir <laughs> and it's, it's a little bit challenging as we're in this period. But in reality, we just began. Paula and I have begun working on this biography in, in really in January. So even though it, it feels like four months have gone by too quickly, it's really just the beginning of that process. So what's it like to co-author a biography and why not write it yourself? You know, I'm not sure how universal this statement is, but I'll try and explain it from my own perspective. I loved working with George Ellison on the biography Back of Beyond. I think the advantage of working with somebody else is that, well, there are lots of advantages. One, you can brainstorm with that person, but you can also bring each other's 
knowledge base in into the process rather than relying just on your own knowledge you have that other person to consult with to disagree with to argue a point with to come to an understanding or an insight so i think that that certainly was my experience working with george and i and i think you know working with paul it's similar as i said earlier i'm here in upstate new york um it for me, it was helpful working with George Ellison, who was in Western North Carolina, who had been as engaged in Kephart studies for decades. And unbeknownst to him, I had also been engaged in Kephart studies for decades too. So we met and then could share each other's knowledge bank, essentially. Um, I think with Paul, I think those same advantages are there. You know, again, I'm still in upstate New York, and Paul's in Asheville, North Carolina. Paul's in, Paul's a photographer. I'm not a photographer. Um, if we were going to have a third co-author, it would be somebody who knew Japanese. It's advantageous to, you know, to call on others' expertise. And you know, I hope that Paul will find my expertise in areas that will be beneficial to him. I think it involves a lot of trust. And I think Paul and I have been working together for the last four months. And, you know, you share your knowledge, you share the tidbits of information that you have, you share um, the insights that you've gained, and you entrust that other person with your knowledge. And it's been a pleasure working with Paul for these last four months. You know, both of us, I think, are looking forward to actually being in the same room and, <laughs> and having more than Zoom conversations at some point. Um, so we have different tools that we use. We have our Dropbox folders where we're putting all of our information in. We have our little Slack dis discussions or email conversations um, and our, you know, occasional Zoom meetings as well. But um, it's going to be nice to actually to see each other and to, and to pour through research materials together, mm -hmm. um, which I'm sure we'll do. <laughs> How did you first get introduced? Each of you can respond. How did you first get introduced to George Massa? And we'll start with Janet. Well, certainly my introduction to George Massa was through Kephart. He became someone that you needed to know more about in order to understand his relationship with Kephart. We can't ask George Massa questions at this point, but um, what others said about him becomes a, a rich source of, of, of information. So understanding Kephart through Massa, I mean, what Massa had to say about Horace, what Horace had to say about George was, was also important. And through that, you know, I certainly watched Paul's film, which I found extraordinarily beautiful and moving. Um, watched Ken Burns' film. You know, I, I think what Ken and and Paul did was animate the story of, of George Massa. I mean, I can imagine him being Kephart's traveling companion, but I think in both, in, particularly in Paul's film, he was the focus of the film. And he, you know, he became a person that I wanted to know better as a person writing a biography and realizing that you're going to be spending years with this person. It's, it's really good when you can value the contributions of that person or value the personality or relate to it, relate to that person. So certainly George Massa's story, which I learned through the Kephart story was my introduction. Bill Hart also helped. Bill wrote the first piece, really, the first research piece about George Massa. And there's nothing like sitting in, in Bill's 
study surrounded by his an incredible library on Western North Carolina with amazing collections of George Massa material, which he opened up to me. But sitting in his study with Bill strumming the banjo and telling you what Barbara Ambler Thorne said to him, I mean, that too brought George Massa to life for me. I mean, I'm, I'm up here in upstate New York. It's snowing today. You know, I'm so far away from sunny Asheville environment. So I need surrogates to, <laughs> to help me keep Massa focused. I, I came to him through intermediaries. And Paul, how did you come to know Massa? Yeah, you know, what's interesting is uh, I've always been interested in black and white photography and just sort of old things. And when I moved to Asheville, I, I grew up around here, but then I moved back in 97. There were Bill Hart's article, his research chapter in a, in a book came out in like 98, I think, 99, somewhere in there. Uh, Rob Neufeld uh, in the paper here wrote some. Uh, some articles and some things started happening and I saw I saw those uh, and was just immediately intrigued for all the same reasons that you know often people are with with George Massa uh, just the idea of this Japanese man and, and then seeing some pictures of him Bill Hart's article came from such a place of of passion as well Bill having hiked these mountains for for a long time and being a part of the Carolina Mountain Club uh, when he wrote the article and then I called him, I just realized what an important sort of story it was to him and to the region. And I said, do you think there's more to, to, to be done with this? And he was like, oh, I just scratched the surface on telling the story of George Massa. And so, you know, I'd made a few films at that point, but I, I needed something to both ground me in Asheville and to... I needed I needed a kind of a, a film commitment, and I've hiked and have loved being outdoors since I was a kid. And the things kind of combined. And as I found out, I really like trying to solve problems or or do research. I, I really enjoy the idea that I'm going to um, uncover something that needs to be uncovered. So. Uh, it, you know, it was Bill Hart and just the general passion that I, I, I connected to the to Masa story that, that, that started me on the adventure. And then a whole bunch of things fell into place at the same time. You know, like, fortunately, there were, there were a handful of people who were still alive. And, and, and as, I, as it's happened with the other films, it was a race against time to try to get some interviews before some people died. And, and simultaneous, I get kind of passionate thinking that, this box of photographs is sitting on in someone's attic. And so I'm scouring the obituaries and wondering if this person who died might have been connected to the same family who might have, you know, I, I just begin to spiral out of control with possibilities. So, yeah, you know, um, people love, uh, at least I do a, a story that, um, uh, that tells a lot of, uh, can express a lot of facets uh, simultaneous to to the kind of core story, and like I mentioned earlier, Moss's story incorporates so many other threads from the period that it, it it's an opportunity to tell history through Moss's story, like George Ellison telling Kephart's story. There's no question that when you fall in love with someone's story and you retell it, you incorporate some of your own existence in that 
retelling. I mean, it is, it is your story that you're adopting into the world and you either want to be like that guy or you, you, you share some values and some ideas that are so important to you that you, that you find a character that you fall in love with and you want to, you want to express it. Um, that's been the same way with, with some of the other films I've made. And yeah. If you don't have that passion, uh, it's really hard for me to do anything. So when you find it, you have to do the most you can with it. I think. Well, let's listen to a piece from your film, Paul. In this selection, George Massa is writing letters to his friends about his financial struggles and other challenges during the Great Depression and how his trips to the mountains have reinvigorated him. In the summer of 1930, Massa and Horace Kephart encountered an intelligent young woman who shared their interest in the Cherokee. Margaret Gooch worked as a court magistrate in the small town of Lexington, east of Asheville. Massa would turn to Gooch, writing frequently and openly of his financial struggles with the onset of the Great Depression. Banks closed their doors. I never saw such excited people in my life. I lost every cent I had in American National Bank, so that's that. But my head is up. Never surrender. Massa's spirits were further dampened when, devastated by the Depression, several acquaintances committed suicide. If Clarence's suicide depends on his business worries, I might do the same thing. There is only one thing I can. Raise up $250 more and do business by myself or burst. And I never told anyone business is rotten. Whenever they ask, I say, business fine. Within three months, Massa's optimism had returned. My financial situation has settled. Soon I like to stand on my feet. When I want to make trips... These things don't bother me. I just leave the office, go into woods, get fresh balsamo air, then come back. Start strong fight, no use to worry. That's where I do. Maybe I am wrong, but it's good to me all the time. Paul Bonestill's film, The Mystery of George Massa, is available on Vimeo. Paul, since your documentary was made, what mysteries have been answered? And how are you going to try to unravel the existing unknowns? Well, you know, some interesting things have come up over the past uh, 15, 18 years. There has been a steady stream of of people engaged in sort of the storytelling and and additional research. Uh, Obviously, Janet and George and the Ken Burns film that came out on the national parks. So people have been exploring the known universe of, of Masa, you know, during this time. Some very intriguing things have, have popped up, some letters that, that I didn't have when I made the film, some acknowledgement, and I, I think we have somewhat confidence now that we understand a little bit more about the fact that uh, Masa came to America probably with some friends or a group that was supporting each other in some way. There was mention in the film about um, him to keeping a, an account of, of his funds very closely. And there was some scrutiny and question about what, why he would be keeping such records. And so uh, there's a little, there's some more information about, about that. And it, it does speak to one of the things that we're researching actively is what was the experience like for immigrants to America during that time, especially from Japan. 
it, it's a fascinating journey for any immigrant, but just the, the um, enthusiasm and the optimism that Masa had and that others had to come to a, you know, a foreign country and to launch out on an adventure, as Masa said, uh, there's, a, there's a great spirit and there's a great sort of American story there uh, to, to, to retell it. And to, so to dive into that um, backstory hopefully leads to, to his roots in Japan and, and, and his family dynamic. Um, there are some things that have come up since the film was made that kind of clarify more about the fact that he did have a, a family and we think we know more about when his parents died and some things of that nature that we hope to explore fully in the book. So, you know, the, the, the kind of soul questions uh, about what made George Massa like do the things he did, those have been contemplated for quite some time. Even his friends who knew him, um, I think we're asking some of those questions when they were together. So the answers there are, are a work in progress too, but I think we're finding again with looking at his work and his relationships like with Kephart and with others, how he was drawing on this very enthusiastic group of people who were creating the, the Appalachian Trail and the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and, and promoting Asheville and like doing a lot of things that uh, he was caught up in, a, in an amazing group of people um, and he loved what he was doing. So when you can do what you love, have the support of, of, of people from the Rockefellers to the people who took him in in his first house and, and fed him and became like he became part of their family for, for a few years. It just is a neat story. So we're um, like Janet said, there are clues that even in the material that we've had for that have been, has been around since he, since he died um, that we're now looking at differently through the lens of a, of a biography. And, you know, Sandberg, Carl Sandberg said, you know, biography is the hardest of all uh, genres. And he had experimented with quite a few of them. And, and I, we are at the beginning, but I can already tell uh, it's, it's going to be hard. Uh, Janet's been through it with George. I've been through it, but not in the same way as writing, you know, um, 300 pages or something. So I'm glad that Janet's on board to help guide me through that process. I expect some pain and suffering along the way. Um, <laughs> but but uh, we, we hope to produce a book that is the definitive story of George Massa. I mean, why would we do anything other than that? Um, and as soon as it gets published, maybe something else will turn up. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, hopefully it'll be you know, a, a great story for, for those involved and interested in, in what Masa was passionate about, but hopefully it'll, it'll be something that um, a lot of different lovers of history would, would find fascinating. And to see his work, we're excited to show photographs of Masa's in this book that presented well and, and are beautifully curated, if you will, so that people, any photographer, you know, you've got to see his work to really appreciate his vision. So, and new photos are popping up continually. Yeah, I, I could go on, but they're uh, like the Kephart uh, collection of Masa photographs. Um, and there's a, the, one of the big, big mysteries is where did his, his archive go? Where did Masa's negatives and his collection and that is uh, unfortunately still an unresolved question um do we have a, 
a, a, a large majority of his work because it, because his best stuff was printed in multiple publications and was given his gifts. Yes. Is there, is there no doubt that a good 20 to 40% of it is not visible to anyone because it was kind of lost after his estate sort of spiraled into multiple hands? Yes. That may be the most difficult thing to button up because where that collection went yeah, is, is a mystery for sure. So why is George Massa relevant today? Why is his story relevant today, Paul? Yeah, you know, um, there's a sort of a paradox going on where you can hike into the Smokies and see the same exact views that Massa and Kephart and others from the 20s, early 30s saw as the park was being formalized. And, and you can share that experience. And, and so telling the story is a way of connecting sort of the timelessness of the, of the experience and of the the mountains and of the sort of biodiversity and all the beauty that, that make up the Smokies. And you can also drive from Cherokee to Gatlinburg and wherever else in these mountains right now and see the world that's very different from when they were forming the idea and, and, and hiking these ridges. And there is need for conservation today that is needs to be as as passionate as, and as intelligent as ever. So, if the story can can inspire people to take ownership and not just passion, but intelligent sort of operation from our park service and from the federal government and from all the factors and all the forces that that keep our our natural places beautiful and functional. I mean, these are. These are important messages now. And for me, the story, the history, and the, the journey of George Massa, you know, illuminates the need for, for people to, to be involved and engaged today. The volume of people and how the national parks and national forests and private land, is, how it's managed and how it's used uh, has never been more important in this age of global warming and political divisiveness. And just uh, so... You know, hopefully these stories and taking some time to go back in time, you always hope to make a difference. You, you know, Kephart and Massa and all, all of the, the, the people involved wouldn't have done what they did if they didn't feel like uh, it was important to them. And, and you know, in Massa's life story and Kephart's life story, the mountains provided a, a very important respite for them, you know, place of of nourishment and we all need that like right now and, and in our society and culture broadly but it it brings responsibilities too uh, who was it that said oh i don't know if it's ed abby or uh, somebody sometimes you have to be very passionate about preservation but sometimes you have to just go out and jump into the river and swim and, and enjoy it you know and see see it all and take it all in and just use it and love it and i think Masa was caught up in those that dichotomy of, of both the passion and the love for being out there and the responsibility. So that's why it's relevant to me is that we, we carry those responsibilities today. Yeah. I think it's also an, an immigrant story too. And I, I, I suspect Paul would agree that mm -hmm. it's, you know, to me, here's a man who comes to the States, you know, early 20th century and in 18 years, we, 
accomplishes so much. And reminding ourselves of the richness that our country has because of of immigrant contributions. I think that that's I think that's a really important story for us to also ponder in the George Massa biography. You know, he had significant challenges, particularly with anti-immigrant fervor, and yet he didn't seem to allow that to get in his way. And you know, his friends didn't seem to limit his experience in the United States, which I also think is, you know, is a wonderful part of the story. He accomplished much by taking opportunities, and he was helped by, you know, friends and neighbors who believed in him. I'd like to think that that's also very much a part of his immigrant story, but also of of others. Do you think he was treated a bit like a novelty at first, and then his personality won a lot of people over? especially in the upper class in Asheville, did they treat him like a novelty that they just wanted to get to know him for that reason? Well, I remember Rob Neufeld said that Seeley, the manager of the Grove Park Inn, liked to have interesting people on the staff in order to, you know, they were part entertainment. But, you know, George Mess's job at the Grove Park Inn was ironing clothes or pressing suits. Eventually, he also was developing film for clients of the hotel. But I think once he displayed his photography, I don't think it was so much a matter of um, him being a novelty. I think he was hired for his professional expertise. I don't think the Asheville Chamber of Commerce would have said, we think you're the best photographer unless they thought he was the best photographer to represent Western North Carolina. Paul, did you have anything to add to that? Yeah, no, I, I think he, he might have been looked at as a, as a novelty for a, a short period of time before he became much more than that, obviously. And um, what's fascinating to me about that and this, uh, is how quickly that transition happened from laundry hand to leading hand in the park movement. Like within ten years' time, um, but even that, even in in the very in the 1915 to 1917 period, he either taught himself photography very quickly or he had learned it somewhere else. He's a very intelligent, very quick learner. Because even in 1919, he was borrowing Fred Seely's camera for one of his early businesses. Which I was just reading that letter last night, just and it kind of struck me like, wow. He, he'd been borrowing Fred Seeley's camera for four years. He, he earned the trust of, of people with his skills and his, and his intelligence very quickly. Well, cameras were a lot harder to use back then, too, it seems. They're not as simple as they make them nowadays. That's absolutely true. You know, he had ordered some books on photography, and we have evidence of that. And so I'm under the belief, that, until proven otherwise, that he was mostly self-taught with that and a quick learner from other people showing him very rudimentary things and then turning that into skills. Wow. That's impressive. Janet, what are you hoping people who love the Great Smoky Mountains will take away from this George Massa biography? I think one of the things that I hope, and I think Paul expressed this too, is that our book would be a showcase for, for George Massa's photography. Paul has a backdrop right now of um, two photographs that, that are George Massa's. And his photographs are extraordinary. I'm looking at them through Zoom with, you know, four people on this screen. And the luminosity of his artistry is extraordinary. Paul has once described 
George Mass's photographs as being almost walking through a landscape, the way he uses layers. And I think that that's one of the things is I hope that people who have never been to the Smokies will see some of that beauty through his photography. But I think I'm also hoping that people will see the kind of human being he was to devote so much of his energy and his expertise to a cause that was bigger than, than he. To me, it's an inspirational story, and, um, and I'm hoping others will become inspired by reading the biography. You don't necessarily know how your readers are going to take the, the story. So I'm also, one of the things that I particularly enjoy is hearing what people take from, from a story. That certainly has been fun to hear people's reactions to Back of Beyond. They have, they have their own interpretation, but they come away with additional questions that, that they have about that individual. So I'm hoping that the book will both tell his story, but also let people imagine their own kind of biography of, of George Massa based on the research that we did. But they're also going to formulate their own image of who this man is. And I think Paul and I were talking about this the other day. I think to a certain degree, each generation has rediscovered George Massa. I mean, George died in 1933, and 10 years later, his tombstone was marked by, you know, members of the um, Carolina Mountain Club. 30 years after he died, members of the Carolina Mountain Club petitioned to have Massa Knob named in honor of him. Um, 60 years after Massa dies, Bill Hart rediscovers his contributions and, and does incredible research to, to bring George Massa to life. And then I'll have to just get my calculator out. 70 years later, <laughs> um, you know, Paul is doing the mystery of, of um, George Massa, the documentary that, that again animated and brought to life um, George and then Ken Burns. So I, f- I feel like there's this cycle of, of rediscovering who Massa was and, and being compelled to tell his story again. And I feel to a certain degree that that's what, what Paul and I have come to at this stage. Do you guys have any plans to travel to Japan? I don't really feel like it would be fruitful for me to travel to Japan not knowing Japanese. As I said, we we have hired a person to help us at this end, and she has some good contacts in in Japan. And once, I mean, Japan is under lockdown as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But what we'd hope is that we could hire somebody there. I would love to go to Japan. Um, I don't know that our I don't know that our research budget is, is <laughs> since it's non-existent, I'm not quite sure that our research budget is going to take us to Japan. But um, maybe someday, maybe someday uh, I would be able to. When we are able to identify exactly where in Japan George Masa was born and spent the first 20 some odd years of his life, that would be more meaningful to me to, to visit and to, to kind of experience. But I would, I've always wanted to go to Japan, um, even before I knew George Masa. So I'd love to go, but um, it, it's not on the research agenda yet. Uh, not in person, <laughs> at least. Thanks for the suggestion, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, Janet McHugh and Paul Bonestill, it was wonderful to talk to you today. Thank you so much for being our first live guest on Smoky Mountain Air. Well, thank you, Valerie, for having us. Thank you, Karen. It was really a pleasure.
Yes, thank you. It's always fun to talk about George. Janet McHugh and Paul Bonesteel are co-authoring a biography of George Massa, the enigmatic photographer of the Great Smoky Mountains and Western North Carolina, who, among other accomplishments, contributed to the efforts to create a national park in the Southern Appalachians. We look forward to their book, which is currently in the early research stage and will be published by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Be sure to check out Bill Hart's article about George Massa in Smokey's Life magazine, Volume 2, Number 2. You can find this out-of-print issue and others at smokiesinformation.org slash missingissues. You can also find more of George Moss's photographs on Buncombe County Library's website. A link is available in this episode description. Look for more episodes in our series, Smoky Mountaineer, from Great Smoky Mountains Association to come soon. Our theme music is from Old Time Smoky Mountain Music, GSMA's Grammy-nominated music collection available at smokiesinformation.org. Bird recordings by Mark Dunaway. Thanks for listening. (laughs) ¶¶